Welcome to this session in the listener's commentary on Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. In this session, we're going to look specifically at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And this section, though it really does begin a new section, a new section focused on Paul's ministry and the nature of Paul's ministry, and in a certain sense, really defending the credibility of Paul's ministry, it is directly connected to things Paul said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. If you recall in 1 Thessalonians 1.5, in his thanksgiving about the Thessalonians, Paul describes how the gospel came to them in power, in the spirit, and in full assurance. And part of that full assurance, he says, is their manner of life, Paul and his team's manner of life. You know what kind of people we were among you. And the other way what Paul says here in chapter 2 is directly connected to chapter 1 is at the end of chapter 1, Paul talks about people reporting about the kind of reception, he says, we had with you. And what Paul is going to describe then in chapter 2 is that very reception. In fact, chapter 2, verse 1 picks up and says, For you yourselves know, brothers and sisters, that our reception among you was not in vain. And so he's going to go on here in 2, 1 through 12 and describe that reception. And he's going to describe how he came to them. He's then going to describe how he acted among them. So he is fleshing out the kind of people they, they were among them and the kind of reception he had with them. Now, it's possible that he's, he's doing this because maybe there's been some rumors circulating through town around the Christians, maybe from extended family, maybe from co-workers, maybe from friends, right? Maybe there's been some rumors uh, challenging Paul's integrity, and oftentimes scholars will describe this section of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 as Paul defending his ministry in Thessalonica. And there certainly is a sense of that here. He he is offering a defense. We just don't know what all is going on behind the scenes. And so maybe some of the unbelievers in town are questioning Paul's integrity as a way to really kind of rankle and harass the believers. How in the world can you believe that guy, Paul? I mean, he was only here for a short time and then, and you know, and then he just takes off like that. And how do you know he's not just after your money, right? These kinds of things um, were not uncommon in Paul's day. And so it's possible that some of the surrounding uh, townsfolk, friends and uh, connections to the early Christians there in Thessalonica were accusing Paul of being like so many of the wandering uh, cynic philosophers of his day who would come in, set up shop, you know, gather a little following, take money, and then leave town and never really fulfill their promises or whatever. Um, and in fact, one particular writer, a generation after Paul, accused the cynics of some of the very things Paul defends himself against here. They accuse the cynics of error, impurity, and deceit, and flattery, and love of honor, and love of money. Um, and and Paul actually says those very same things here. And so it's quite possible that uh, there was this comparison of Paul to other charlatans and, and false philosophers of Paul's day who, who you know, were just interested in flattery, love of honor, love of money, and those kinds of things. 
Uh, and thus, Paul maybe felt the need to defend the integrity of the ministry a little bit because of some of the things that were being circulated in town about Paul and his team as a way to undermine the credibility of his teaching and his message. Now, as a way to frame up everything Paul says in verses 1 through 12 here, you can think of the, the dominant question Paul is asking and answering in this section as this. What did Paul appeal to to show that his visit to the Thessalonians wasn't empty or wasn't in vain? And you see that topic show up in verse 1, where Paul says, For you yourselves know, he's appealing to their knowledge. It hasn't been that long since he was there. For you yourselves know, brothers and sisters, that our reception, our coming to you and our welcome among you, was not in vain or was not empty. The idea of vain there is empty, futile, a waste of time. So you yourselves know that our reception among you wasn't empty. It wasn't fruitless. It wasn't in vain. Now, how does Paul demonstrate that? What does he do? Well, he jogs their memory by recalling what, how he acted among them and how they welcomed them. And so in verse 2, he goes on and says, but, and this is a not just a general, but this is actually a contrast, but far from being a failure, Paul says, but after we had already suffered and been treated abusively in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak the gospel to you amid much opposition. And so Paul recalls really their initial coming to them. He even recalls what happened before they came and, and says, you know about that. He talks about how he had suffered and been treated abusively in Philippi. Now, you can read the story in Acts chapter 16 about Paul's ministry at Philippi, but that's the event where Paul was uh, dr dragged before the city rulers there in Philippi. He was accused of preaching a different king other than Caesar and bringing an illegal religion. He got beaten with rods right in public in downtown Philippi. How he was and, his, and Silas were thrown in prison and put in stocks and all of that. And this totally without any investigation, without any justification, and against Paul's rights as a Roman citizen. And yet that's what happened. And so he was treated with both shame and abuse. And that's the idea of those words. He's treated in a, a way that was shameful, disgraceful, and in an honor and shame society like the ancient world uh, to be publicly humiliated and disgraced in such a shameful way, contrary to the facts and contrary to his rights. That's what happened in Philippi. And so you know that. And yet, even though that happened in Philippi, it didn't stop us from preaching the gospel to you. That's, that's how certain, fully persuaded that this gospel is true, right? Like, you know what kind of people we were, he said in five. You know the full conviction we, we came to you with. Well, here's evidence of it. We have been treated abusively and shamefully in Philippi, and yet we still have the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God, the good news of God's deliverance and rescue amid much opposition. Even there with you, we faced hardship, harassment, and opposition. And this fact for Paul is evidence of the genuineness of his message and the integrity of of his mission and his lifestyle. He goes on in verse 3 here to say, for our exhortation, our preaching, really, our challenge to you, that's the idea of exhortation, our exhortation does not come from error 
or impurity or by way of deceit. Some of those very things that wandering cynic philosophers have been accused of in Paul's day. Paul says our, our message, our preaching doesn't come from that. It doesn't come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. It's evidenced by the fact that we we're willing to suffer for it, right? Like uh, that our suffering evidences the genuineness of our message. So it doesn't come from error. That is the idea of falsehood, impurity, meaning impure motives, you know, being in it for ourselves, trying to get rich, right? Loving honor and flattery and some of those things. It doesn't come from those kinds of things, impurity. It doesn't come by, by way of deceit, right? Like we're not trying to trick anyone or deceive anyone, right? We're not telling lies and falsehoods and deceiving people. But verse four, just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not intending to please people, but to please God who examines our heart. Man, verse four is for anybody in any kind of ministry who sees, you know, the, the work of their hands is in some sense serving God. For anybody doing that, verse 4 is such a powerful verse for us. Notice what Paul says. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, Paul understands that his ministry is a sacred trust from God. God is the one who has entrusted him with the gospel. This isn't something Paul just chose on his own. This isn't something Paul just dreamed up. This is he this is a trust from God. God has entrusted him with the gospel. Not only that, God actually tested and approved him to be entrusted with the gospel. Just as we have been approved by God and that word approved there comes from the Greek word dokimazo and it's the idea of testing something to see if it's fit for something. You're testing something to see if it's going to work, right? It's a, you know, testing out a part to make sure it works on a car, right? This is a testing. Okay, this is good. This works. We're going to do that. So God tested and approved Paul and his team to be entrusted with the gospel and under that sense of sacred trust, under that sense of being approved by God, Paul says, that's how we speak. We speak as people knowing that we have been given the sacred trust, having been tested and approved by God, so we speak that way, not intending to please people. We're not after, you know, flattering people. We're not after pleasing people. We're not after, right? Like, we're uh, our ultimate audience isn't people. It's ultimately God. We don't seek to please God or please people, but we seek to please God, he says, who examines our hearts. God knows what's going on in our hearts. Man, we, we could barely even know our own motives, but God examines our hearts. And so our ministry, our preaching, our speaking, it's before God uh, for his examination. In fact, that word examination there is related to the same word for approved. And so it's like this ongoing quality control program. God tested and approved us, entrusted with the gospel. We speak and God keeps examining our hearts to make sure our hearts are pure, our motives are right, uh, the integrity of our mission and our message is legitimate and genuine. God's the one who examines and approves what we do. And then Paul goes on to describe, just in all honesty, what motivated him to do this. Verse 5, For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is our witness. Nor did we seek honor from people. Again, some of those very same things that wandering cynic philosophers had been accused of a generation after Paul by a writer named Dia Chrysostom. Uh, the, he had accused 
the cynics of these very same things. This was just an issue in the world of Paul's day. And Paul's like, that, that's not us. That's not who we were. We didn't come with flattering speech. We didn't just butter people up in order to get you to like us. We didn't just say what you wanted to hear, uh, as you know. Uh, we didn't come with a pretext for greed. We, and he's going to go on to describe how, you know, I'll show you that we didn't come with a pretext for greed. Remember this? He's going to go on in verses 9 and following and demonstrate how there was no pretext for greed. But he, he just lists it here. We didn't come with a pretext for greed. We weren't interested in just getting rich or, or money from you. God's our witness to that. Nor did we seek honor from people, either from you or from others, though we could have asserted our authority as apostles of Christ. So we, we didn't come um, seeking honor. We didn't come you know, uh, appealing to our authority, to our position of power, even though we were apostles of Christ, right? Like we were official ambassadors of King Jesus. Thus, we had authority because Jesus gave it to us. And thus, we had even the right to assert that authority. But we didn't use that right. We didn't do that. And Paul actually says this kind of thing in several places throughout his letters where he says, look, we could have we could have expected this of you as apostles of Christ. He says this in 2 Corinthians, for example. But we didn't do that. That's just not the way we acted. Um, that's not who we were. Rather than asserting his authority, how did Paul and his team act? Well, verse 7, he says, But we prove to be gentle among you. This idea of gentle is really self-lowering. It's consideration for the needs of others, consideration for what's best for others. And so we were gentle. We didn't just bully you over. We didn't just boss you around. We didn't just take over and take charge, right? We didn't just assert our authority. We didn't force you to follow our agenda or our ambition. We were gentle among you. How gentle? Well, Paul says, and we were like a nursing mother who tenderly cares for her own children. That's how we were, he says, among you. We were like a, a tender nursing mother. Now, there is some textual variance there, nursing mother. We were like a nursing baby or we were like a nursing mother. It, it's really, really a minor difference in Greek. Nursing mother makes more contextual sense, probably is what Paul has in mind here. But the point is, this is the nature of our gentleness. We were vulnerable. We were tender. We were like a nursing mother and how she cares for her child, this affection and this tenderness at this most really sensitive, special sort of place, a nursing mother. That's how we acted among you. That's the posture we took, he says. Um, in the same way, verse 8, he says, we had a fond affection for you and we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own lives as well because you had become very dear to us. So he's just recalling the experience that they had with Paul and the nature of that, their relationship and sharing his heart with them. Like he's being vulnerable and opening himself up. And this is who we were among you. We had a fond affection for you. We were delighted to share with you, not just the gospel, but we shared with you our very lives. We opened our heart. We opened our lives. We got involved in your life because you had become very dear to us. You had become very special to us. And so Paul recalls his relationship with him, his welcome with him, the reception, that it wasn't empty. It wasn't vain. It wasn't fruitless, right? It wasn't self-serving and self-interested. No, Paul came tenderly, gently, and self-giving for them. He came not for his best interest, but for their best interest, and he shared his own life with them. And in verses 9 through 12, then he continues describing this. He actually recalls 
his specific behavior. This is where we get that he, he wasn't interested in greed or making money. Notice what he says. Verse 9, for you recall, just remember, for you recall, brothers and sisters, our labor and our hardship. It was by working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you that we proclaim to you the gospel of God. So when we came and we preached the gospel to you, like we actually paid for our own room and board. We paid for our own keep. It was with labor and hardship, working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you. And this actually seems to have been a standard policy in Paul's ministry. You you see this in various locations and described in various parts of Paul's letters where Paul came to town and rather than taking money from the new believers in town, he would he would welcome offerings from other places. And so, as we noted in the introduction to this very letter itself, that when Paul was in Athens after he left Thessalonica and Berea, he received an offering from Philippi and perhaps from Thessalonica as well now that he's in Athens. But when he was in town, he he rarely would take a uh, any offering or any money or even um, let somebody host him without paying for it, right? Like that, why? Because he didn't want to be accused of being in it for the money. In the Corinthian correspondence, in 2 Corinthians, Paul says, now, I had the right to do that. And you know, the worker is worthy of his wages as an apostle uh, who who shares with you spiritual things. I had the right to receive material things from you, he says in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 9, but I didn't take advantage of that right. This was standard, really, for Paul, more often than not. That's why in Philippi, just before he came to Thessalonica, that Paul, you know, it, it took a lot for Lydia to actually prevail upon Paul and his team and let Paul stay with her at her house. Why? Because Paul didn't want to let her host him because he never knew how long he'd be in town because of the hostility. And then he'd have to leave town and he didn't want to be accused of taking people's money and running. And so Paul says, you know that. You can recall that, right? We showed up there. We we set up shop in, in the local leather maker or tent maker shop. We worked for our own room and board. Um, we worked long days and then we preached when we could. Why? Because we didn't want to be a burden to any one of you. And so both not wanting to be accused of taking people's money and running and not wanting to be a burden on a brand new church that he's just getting planted. He says, this is how we acted. Um, and that's how we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. He says, verse 10, you're witnesses of this. And so is God. You saw this. You know how we acted. Um, God's also witness. God can testify on our behalf. So there's two witnesses, you yourself and God himself, in keeping with really the Jewish heritage and the Jewish background from Paul that any testimony is confirmed by two or three witnesses. Well, Paul's got, he's got the entire church as a witness, and he's got God himself as a witness of how devoutly, he says in verse 10, and how rightly and how blamelessly we behave towards you believers. You can remember this. How devoutly. Devoutly is the idea of pious. Like it has to do with your devotion to God. This particular word has to do that we were devout among you. We were God-centered and God-fearing is the idea of devoutly. How rightly. That means how justly and righteously. Like above board. We were upright. We were upright in all our dealings. We were straightforward. We were above board. We were upright in all our dealings. And how blamelessly. Like can't find fault, right? Like we're, we were above reproach. Like there was, there's no fault in what we did. You can recall that. This is just concrete, tangible evidence. Your witnesses 
of how we behaved towards you believers, just as you know how we were exhorting you and encouraging you and imploring each of you as a father would his own children. Again, this this family sort of metaphor in the preceding verses, it was as a tender mo- a mother tenderly cares for her children while nursing for them, right? Like uh, this maternal metaphor there. Here it's a paternal metaphor. It's a father um, that exhorting and encouraging and imploring. Three words to just really describe um, the way Paul taught them. He exhorted them. He he called them forward and, and challenged them, right? He encouraged them. He brought strength and comfort to them. He implored them as the idea of really warning them and teaching them, imploring them to do what's right. Like Paul says, we did this with the same dedication and the, the same earnestness that a father would his own children, because that's how important you were to us and how you managed us. With the same level of self-giving, we did this. He says, we exhorted, encouraged, and implored you as a father would his own children, so that, verse 12, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and into his glory. And this really describes the goal of Paul's ministry among them. Notice what he says, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of God. That's the goal of his ministry. He he lived among them. He taught them. He implored them. He challenged them. He insisted on certain standards of living, right? He did all of that with the ultimate goal that they would walk worthy. Again, we see this in various uh, letters of Paul where this really kind of is his encapsulating idea for what he wants. He wants he wants us as followers of Jesus to carry out our life, that's the idea of walk, to go about our life in a manner that's worthy of God, um, as those who are made in the image of God, as, the, as those who are known as the sons and daughters of God. Our life is supposed to be worthy of God's own character and God's own glory and God's own goodness and God's own greatness. And so Paul poured himself out among the Thessalonians so that they would learn to walk in that manner, manner uh, worthy of the God who he says calls you into his own kingdom. That when we come into Christ, it's, it's, it's a transfer of kingdoms. We move from the kingdom of self to the kingdom of God. We move from the kingdom of man to the kingdom of God, right? We've moved into a new kingdom. So he calls us into his own kingdom, Paul says, the God who calls you into his own kingdom and who calls you to his own glory. You've been called into the very glory, the greatness, the majesty, the beauty of God. And thus, as people who have been called into God's kingdom and glory, Paul has worked hard so that they would walk, carry out their life in a manner worthy of that. Now, even though Paul is speaking incredibly personally here, and he's describing his own life here, and he's doing so for the purpose of really helping the Thessalonians be confident in the integrity of his ministry among them, Paul's example is incredibly instructive to us. And I think verses 1 through 12, this section we just walked through, for anybody in ministry is the kind of section that we ought to read through and pray through and think through on a regular basis. If we're in ministry, we we can learn from Paul's example here. We hear what really drove his ministry. We hear his heart. We hear the way he 
felt about and thought about those people that were in the sphere of his ministry. And it sets a high standard of integrity and genuineness and care for any of us who are ministry, whatever our ministry is, whether it's paid vocational ministry, whether it's maybe a small group leader in our church or a Bible study leader of some sort, right? Like we look at Paul and we're like, man, Paul, you have set a very high standard for the way I should approach my ministry in my life. And that really, I think, is one of the major things for us to learn out of this section as Paul describes his ministry to us. I also think that the principles that Paul describes here um, for any believer in any sort of, right, like significant role in life, like, again, Paul's example is challenging to us. So as a parent, um, right, like, could we say these same sorts of things? Do we have these same sort of goals and concerns, right? Or as a business leader who's a believer, do we approach things with the same sort of integrity, the concern for integrity, the concern for a genuine care for the people in our sphere of influence, the genuine concern for the reputation of God through our life and all of that. Paul, again, models for us this sort of real integrity and genuineness as a follower of Jesus. When people look at our lives, does it honestly and genuinely say, man, they acted with integrity? If people were to imitate our lives, if other believers were to imitate our lives, would they become people who walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls them, as Paul describes here at the end of this section? And so Paul really sets a high standard for us for integrity and authenticity in the way we live our lives and we serve God.